You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Long Form, for whom this podcast is named. <laughs> it's true, it's true. It's, uh, it's quite the honor. The eponymous team. <laughs> uh, Evan, uh, who did you speak to this week? This week I interviewed Mattias Schwartz, who we've wanted to have on for a long time, but we had some confusion about who was... We wanted was to getting. have him on so badly that we all assumed that he had been on the yeah, show. We had to search our own archive to confirm whether or not he had been on the show before. <laughs> so and he's a young writer. He has done pieces for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and... Harper's, he that, won the that Livingston great piece Award. On the Jamaican piece, yep. the Jamaican yeah. drug lord. Piece. That won the Livingston Award last year. Yeah, uh, and he he does a lot of thinking, not just about doing the reporting, but sort of like what it all means and how he approaches it. He's a really interesting guy to talk to. Great, uh, Max. Do we have any sponsors this week? In fact, we do. In fact, we do. We have two. Uh, which one would you like to talk about? Well, I mean, of course, if, if I'm given the, uh, the option, I'm going to talk about Audible because I'm so enthusiastic about the product. Uh, they make the best audiobook library on the web. You can play it on your iPhone, your Android, whatever. They've got tons of great books, some of whom, some of which are by people who've been on the show reading their own books. So if you've fallen in love with the voice of people like Jennifer Sr., you could definitely hear her um, reading from All Joy and No Fun or Malcolm Gladwell reading from David and Goliath. So that's something you're going to want to do. You're going to go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. They'll give you 30 days free, and uh, they'll give you a free audio book. There's 150,000 to choose from. So it's a legitimately you're gonna, good deal. You're going to find something you like. Uh, if you find something you like and you want to tell everyone you know about it. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd go to tinyletter.com. You start yourself an email newsletter. It's simple. It's elegant. It's done by the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here's Edmund and Match Tie Shorts. All right, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. Thanks for coming in. You've cut your hair since I saw you last. Yeah, we're at um medium, maybe short medium, forty percent. That's actually something I was going to ask you about, which would have been easier if you had uh, enormous hair, which you have had in the past. And in fact, I was watching an old like Charlie Rose. Were you on Charlie Rose? Uh, and you had the the big. I would I would say the large hair. Yeah, that was definitely. Uh, 90% of, of the all-time high 
Was, it was really big, yeah. But is there is there any reportorial technique in that? Do, do people? It definitely changes how I come off to people in a way that you disarm them, or that they they think like this guy's got to be all right. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of goes in like a nine month or one year wave. Um, I've asked my fiance if she would be okay with me growing it long enough that I could wear it in a ponytail, which would be really nice because then I could flip it on and off long short <laughs> like a switch. But that's that. The ponytail's a non-starter. She's not thinking about your career. Oh yeah, I know, I know. Never. <laughs> we fight about that a lot. But if I'm in someone's office, it's probably a handicap because meeting someone in their office and talking to them across a desk is is hard enough to begin with, mm-hmm. uh, without my hair getting in the way. You know, if I'm having a bad day. It's nice to have the hair and the beard. You can just hide behind it and you don't have to like respond to people kind of facially at all because you just have this sort of wonderful hedge that you're just peering at them through. I mean, it's nice on t- on on like video, which isn't very often it is it does make for a good a good visual, but I I think it does so it's just like, you know, who let that guy in here, you know? <laughs> That's <laughs> I'm just going to jump right into the story that I want to talk about most, oh, which yeah, is yeah. The, the Christopher Koch story about Jamaica, because maybe we can somehow segue from what hair you had then. Uh, because I remember reading that story, and the thing that caught me up just as also being a reporter was like somewhere in the middle of that story, you say, I spent three months uh, living around uh, Tivoli Gardens, is right? Is the name of the neighborhood or the area to believe yes yeah yeah, yeah. In, and this is a new yorker piece um we'll obviously post a link to it but i just wanted to find out first like how did that story come about well i'd written a bunch of i'd written a lot done a lot of work very quickly immediately before this story and then i, I was kind of itching to take a, a trip um because i had some money saved up from from this sort of intense period of, of really fast work and then someone told me I could go to Cuba, which would be interesting. And and I was like, oh, Cuba. And they're like, yeah, you can go to Cuba through Jamaica. And I just went on like a vacation. I can't say whether I went to Cuba or not. I mean, let's just say I didn't <laughs> uh, for the sake of the propriety. I don't know if they could come after you for having been to Cuba. Well, I don't know. I know dude, definitely they could have on the way back had I gone. Hypothetically. The embargo is really a, a stupid, stupid thing. But I heard you could go through Jamaica, so I went to Jamaica, and if you're, you know, some gringo walking around, you know, and you're bored, you know, people are going to come up to you and they'll want to, like, chat with you, or, or they may be curious, they may have some degree of self-interest. Anyway, I was just wandering around, like, the tourist area in, like, the tourist part of Kingston, which isn't very big, um, and then some guy wanted me to buy him beers, and so I did, I bought him a beer, this was maybe six or eight months after the coke extradition. So we should we should t- say a little bit of what it is. Uh, oh yeah. So so in May of 2010, the U.S. asked the Jamaican government to extradite Christopher Dodas Coke, who was facing charges in the Southern District of New York for being in charge of a big, uh, allegedly drug trafficking organization, a, a crime to which he eventually pled guilty, and it was very hard getting him out of Jamaica. And the country was sort of teetering on the verge of civil war for about a week. And in the process of, of, of getting him out, 
uh, the Jamaican army and police invaded this neighborhood called Tivoli Gardens, which is, you know, it has a reputation for being a bad neighborhood. And, uh, and then more than 70 or 80 people died in what was widely described as a gunfight or, or sort of small-scale urban war. And the neighborhood was described as, as, as uh, Christopher Koch's stronghold. Mm-hmm. So random guy in the street comes up to you. Yeah, and, and, then, you know, and then we were just talking. And then, uh, and then I, I, I think this, when this happened, it was maybe world news for, for a day or two, yeah. two or three days. I did see it kind of fly by. I was like, oh, that's weird. And but I well, I wasn't really thinking about it when I went there. And then the guy I bought him, you know, I bought him a beer. And they were just sitting and drinking a beer. And then he was like, "Oh man, yeah, that thing was so messed up. Like all these people died. It was like totally slaughter." And he wasn't even from Tivoli Gardens. He had no firsthand information. It was weird because it was what he thought had happened was so far away from what was reported in the Times. It was really de- narrated as a kind as a, as a two sided conflict between two armed groups and what he was describing was much more like a massacre or bloodletting which has happened time and time again in jamaica since since colonial times going back to the moron based slave rebellion so anyway i was like whoa this is like there's such a gap between these two accounts so then i went back and i read the new york times stories in the hotel internet (laughs) and then I, i read that um christopher coke have been arrested in the company of a minister named the Reverend Al Miller. So I found out what church the Reverend Al Miller preached at on Sundays, and I went to the church, and there were a lot of people there, and I waited till the end of the ceremony, and then I hung out with all the hangers-on and waited until everyone went and you know into his office, and then I went to his office, and I was like, oh, I'm a journalist, I'm interested in this, and I'm very interested in Tivoli Gardens. Maybe you could just you know take me there and walk me around. Uh-huh. And then we made a date, and then he then he... He, we went and did that, and then from there it was kind of it was it was off and running. So you were still on your your same trip. Yeah, I was on vacation. So I did. So I sort of went there and met some people, and it was pretty interesting. And then you know, then I I went to a different island in the Caribbean that that that, that may or may not have been Cuba. Um, then I came back to Jamaica from this other island, and then you know after I did that trip, uh, then I, I I wrote a pitch for the story after that. Mm-hmm. Had you worked for the New Yorker at all at that point? No, I'd done this was this was for your colleague from the Atavist, um, Nicholas Thompson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he I I'd, I'd done stories for him at Wired. I think I'd brought a couple ideas to him at the New Yorker that had been shot down. This was the first one that got through. And now you have to sort of penetrate this neighborhood which has been described as kind of like a fortress or, you know, the stronghold of this person and also very dangerous and there's this you know, there are these firefights. How confident were you that you could get to the inside of that? area and find the story well you know i'd already been there once by yeah. the time i got the assignment i don't know i mean I, I, most of these things i think if i don't know how to do something I, I just figure it's like digging through a wall with a spoon and if you just uh spend enough time at it eventually you get to the to the other side of the wall um this you know it turned into a massacre story and then the gold standard in a massacre story would be uh like seymour hirsch's uh, Milai pieces, where he got one of the people committing the massacre to actually give a first-hand account of the atrocities that were committed. And that's something that I never got in this story. I wanted to. I wanted to talk to people from the army and the military, and I tried to. And I even got I even got someone to walk me around inside. I was actually inside the like Jamaican army base, and, uh, and, and um, someone with an association with sub-component of the military was like, 
kind of going up to people in person at the bar and seeing if anyone would talk to me. But uh, no one would. Uh, the Jamaican military is very highly professional and very secretive, I think because the island was like a prospect for hypothetical communist takeover in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s. Right. It was like more in play with Castro and stuff. So how did you, how did you then approach it when you, you got there? Christopher Koch was already gone. Yeah. And then the, the, the police and military like set up a base inside the neighborhood and they were driving around in camouflage, you know, with like uniforms and, and assault rifles were driving around in pickup trucks. So it was, it was to whatever extent, you know, it was under the control of, of Christopher Koch that had been severely diminished. So you, you're, you're there in Tivoli Gardens and then how are you approaching sort of finding people to talk to? You're just walking around this neighborhood. It's sort of supposedly a bit dangerous. You're an outsider, you know look different than everyone else like how do how do you how does that work it was interesting i mean so the reverend al miller had walked me around so some people he'd introduced me to mm-hmm. and those people remember that so i could say his name i had someone's name to actually like you know i'm friends with the reverend al miller and that that could mean any number of things it could even be interpreted as like not quite a threat but like just having a name to say you know offers some protection and i wasn't making it up i mean someone could call the reverend al miller and say yeah i know this guy so that that helps but in Tivoli Gardens, a lot of people just hang out in front of their houses kind of all day, talk to each other. And one interesting norm about the neighborhood, if you haven't been there before and people don't know who you are, you're going to get stopped a lot. So people will kind of hail you from their front yard and you can choose to ignore them, which I never did. Um, but then you sort of go over and then you'll be asked to give an account of yourself and, and who you are and why you're there. Huh. So I found myself doing that a lot and, and, and just explaining who I was. And then it was very sunny, and the, the sun would kind of make it hard for me to think sometimes. But, uh, but eventually everyone got, most people figured out who I was, and then I could sort of move around and just kind of wave to people as I went by and then start to focus on talking to a few different people you know, who I wanted to get more of their stories for the, for the purpose of writing something. But I remember there's a young guy there who I'm still good friends with. And one thing he said to me early on is that, you know, I see you walking around and a lot of, you spend way too much time just talking to idiots who aren't going to tell you anything. <laughs> um, and I think that's because I was, I, I didn't want to mess with the possible repercussions of ignoring a person or yeah. sliding a person. I didn't want to start differentiating between people or or cutting some people off, or ignoring some people. It's a very tight community, and then people share information with each other, and stuff gets around really quickly. Yeah. And you, so you really don't want to make, if you can avoid it, you really don't want to piss anyone off or give any anyone a reason to be to be pissed at you. And then a lot of people wanted money. There's a people who like, I know something, I'll tell you if you give me money. Uh-huh. And then there's a people who are like, uh, how is talking to you going to lead to me getting money for the stuff I've been through? You know, which is a little bit different, right. and I think both of those both of those requests have like actually a lot of validity. Um, and then there are the people. This was sort of the silliest thing that anyone would say, <laughs> which would be, I, not too many people said this there. I've gotten this more actually from people at times in the U.S. They'll say, "I know why you're here. You're here because of money. You're getting paid, and your boss is getting paid." There weren't too many people there who said that, but they, you know, they're all it's sort of variations on a theme. Yeah. Did you ever confront that with someone that you? that you needed information from one of the main characters of that story or that, and you had to like 
discuss whether it was okay to you know take them. Yeah, out I mean, lunch then you or, give him different, you know, different tons of lunches and bag juice, which is sort of frozen colored corn syrup that costs twenty five Jamaican pence. Mm-hmm. I would say. If I do it, I, I, there's a rule that I can't do it, and it's a very strict rule. I'd say that. I'd say um, if I did give you money, no one would believe anything that you told me. I would say that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the rule. You could make a good argument that, that some of these people maybe do deserve do deserve some money. Someone should write like a history of the rule and like where it came from. If you went back and looked, I'm not sure it came from reasons that are entirely altruistic or, or ethical in nature. I think some of it just comes from publishers who don't want bidding wars over sources. Sure. Yeah. So I think a lot of it's just, you know, our costs would go up if we started paying people to talk to us. But then there's also the argument that if you start paying people to talk to you, you start getting worse information. If word gets out that you'll pay people for stories, then um, then you're just going to attract people of much, much lower character. The case in point would be our... Uh, Afghani shoeshine man who presents himself, holds himself out as uh, the leader of uh, the Taliban. Right. I mean, this actually happened. Right, right. right they yeah. made off with like two or three million dollars from from the CIA, who are supposed to be the best in the world at this. But even you know, even they got taken pretty badly by this guy who figured out who they wanted to meet, you know, and right. what they wanted <laughs> to hear. You make yourself very vulnerable once you start paying people to tell you certain things you know i think i think it, it it can really muddy the water on the balance i think it's it's a it's a good rule but i think there's also you know there's good arguments on both sides i mean the other part of the story is you were you were kind of exposing that this was a massacre but you were also uh bringing to light the u.s government's involvement in what happened and i was interested in that because it seemed like there was a FOIA request that you filed like related to seeing if the u.s was involved and then it hadn't come back and you published the story, and then it came back after the story. And I'm curious, like, was there a question about whether or not you should, you should wait for it to get the story out, or was there a need to get the story out anyway? I don't know if there was an external need, but I think I think uh, everyone involved with the story, myself included, you know, around a year, a year and a half, you're like, you know, how long is this going to go on for, this investigation? I mean, I did it did feel really good watching True Detective and being like, oh, 17 years. They're just working on, you know. <laughs> what, less than a dozen murders in Louisiana, you know, year and a half, 72 murders, Jamaica, not so bad. But no, no, people, people just start to get impatient. Yeah. If I were smarter and more professional, and maybe this is how, in the, what I would do in the future is that I would file these FOIA requests as early as possible before I did anything. Right. And I would file a FOIA request about anything weird that I read about in the paper and then try to, you know, start the reporting in the investing of like ground resources like a little bit later in the process hey it's your co-host aaron lammer with a quick word from our sponsor audible the best place to get audiobooks um i have found that once i hear a writer uh on the show um speaking with their own voice i'm interested in hearing more of their voice and there's no better place to do that than at audible you can get uh jennifer senior reading all joy no fun uh, Malcolm Gladwell reading David and Goliath. There's over 150,000 titles, so you can get just about anything. You're going to buy it, put it on your iPhone, your Android, or Windows phone. You're not renting it. You own it. Uh, another way I've used it is 
you're reading on your Kindle, then you need to walk somewhere. You can switch straight between the, uh, the Kindle book and the audio book using their WhisperSync feature. Um, so if you've never actually checked out an audio book, I really recommend giving it a shot. Um, if you sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash longform, you'll get a 30-day free trial membership and a free audio book of your choice. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. It helps support this show, and I recommend it. Here's Evan and Mattatias Schwartz. You said a bit earlier that you you ended up staying that long in Jamaica in part because you made some mistakes that you wouldn't make now or you would be better. What types of things? Well, you know, I I just hadn't done this before and I've only done it a couple times now. But at the time, I'm like, okay, I'm investigating a alleged massacre with U.S. government involvement to some extent for the New Yorker. And how much proof do I need? And I didn't know what the answer to that was. So so. I kind of erred to the side of just of just overkill. I like really. I was always thinking, well, to what extent could someone come back later and disprove whatever I'm trying to assert yeah. and find contrary evidence and support a, a, a completely opposite hypothesis? So that's kind of what was always on my mind, and so I wanted to just be like exhaustive, and then I just you know want to stay longer and go further until the the plug gets pulled. I think I went three times, you know, including that first trip, which was which which was on my own account. And then I remember at the end I wanted to go back again, you know, <laughs> and get and get more. Yeah, uh-huh. and they were like, "Because yeah, there's all done here." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which which was good. That was the right decision. But there's there's always more. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you learned how to report at all. So I know oh. that you ran this newspaper in Philadelphia. So for people who haven't don't know about it, like why did you start this newspaper? Was that your first sort of like journalistic endeavor? Uh, almost. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to. Uh, let's see. I was in college, and I really wanted to work for newspapers, and I was daily newspapers, mm-hmm. like print daily newspapers. I was really into that idea. but And this was before the internet started eating daily newspapers lunch, but the daily newspapers were very sort of, you know, I remember calling the Philadelphia Inquirer mm-hmm. from Swarthmore College and talking to the guy who, who uh, did internships. I think his name was Paul Jablo. And he was very rude. He wasn't rude, but he was very standoffish. And he like couldn't believe that you know that that I would deign to be an intern at the Philadelphia. You know, this was like, oh my goodness. No, what you were supposed to do is um you would get like a job at like a, a, a in Bend, Oregon. Right, like and then, small, very small. Then you move to El Paso. Right. You know, and then maybe by the time you were forty three or forty four, you might be ready to be one of three forty three or forty four year olds who'd be considered for a you know metro job at the New York Times. At that time, daily newspapers, they were all making like 30, 30% gross profits uh-huh. based on these local monopolies they had, which is a huge margin. I mean, I think the only industry that makes that much is, is pharmaceuticals in the, in the U.S. So they were really, I mean, they're like, they were like electric utility companies. They had no incentive to evolve. So, so, but I did. I, I worked for the Indianapolis Star. I was able to get a pulling fellowship there. And I wanted to work in City Hall, but... That wasn't in the cards. They offered me a job in a suburban bureau. And I would have gone crazy working in a suburban bureau in Indianapolis. That's just how <laughs> I would have literally lost my mind. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll just go to move to Philadelphia and start my own newspaper. And so. So you didn't take the indie job. You turned down the indie job. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. It, I was there for, 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 for the summer fellowship, which was great. But the, I think the newspaper was seasonal in the beginning. And then it was monthly for a good stretch on the whole. I think we did 21 issues over the course of three and a half years. 
And it was uh, it was like an oversized broadsheet, like bigger than an average broadsheet. Yeah, have you seen them? I have like uh, thousands of them in my parents' <laughs> basement. I can send you some. I have not seen yeah. one live. I've seen photos on the internet, and the, one of the slogans was, you can't read it on the subway or something like that. Yeah, too, too, too big to read on the subway. Right. And then other mod there were four mottos no stress mane sunt infantes that was like our ghosts are young in latin and then um it's all here and it's all true that was ripped off of the philadelphia north american newspaper and then i'm having trouble remembering <laughs> remembering the fourth slogan it will come to me and so you started your own newspaper and presumably you were doing a lot of the reporting writing as well or you were just editing it like what was the goal of of this newspaper like to take on the philadelphia inquirer because this guy had basically told you that you would never no no i i i was just it was an art project and you know i was even more out of my mind than i am now i mean i was a really crazy person and you can probably best to get the anecdotes from the the people who knew me at the time but i i was just nuts and it was like a art project and like the guise of a, a business yeah I was, I was i was just crazy and wanted to start a newspaper because it was just too, it was just this overall life imperative. It was just like what I had to do. The goal was just like to, to, have, it <laughs> to have it come out and then I would like see it and I would be, I'd be happy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and just, so why did it come to an end? It just reached the natural end or was it like not sustainable as a well, it, financial it, I mean, endeavor? It, it was like 30, it, it could have been sustainable, I think, but it was just, um, it was just burnout. I mean, it was like 24 pages or long and there were probably on the average page probably had you know four or five six thousand words on it i was editing the whole thing and like you know everyone was making minimum wage or less i mean we were doing like you know probably 70 80 90 thousand dollars of print advertising a year um so it was taking in some money but i was just it just took so much work to do it and i I didn't want to like i could have delegated i could have sort of lowered the standards like the amount of content or the quality of content um, I could have taken on investors in a business plan. There were all kinds of different ways that it could have moved forward, but I was just, uh, I wasn't organized enough to do any of those things. So then I just got frustrated and I was like, okay, we're going on hiatus. Permanent hiatus. Well, I mean, you know, we'll see. Yeah, it's still yeah, on. Yeah. Let's <laughs> just say the hiatus is on today. Well, then did you know what you wanted to do after that? Were you sort of, now I'm going to go into writing or how did, how did you progress from that to it kind of led to I started writing things for Philadelphia magazine that was pretty organic and then I I did a a Times magazine piece um for about online poker yeah that's uh, the kid for, that uh, robbed a bank yes he got it he became addicted to online poker and robbed a bank and then I was playing a lot of poker at the time too so I I sort of I I empathize with the situation were you good it's very dangerous to believe that you're good at poker I definitely would not claim to be ahead uh, net over the 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 whole of my lifetime poker career. Uh, <laughs> did those feature assignments kind of grow out of like interests that you had? Like, oh, I play online poker. Let me find an online poker story. Or did it seem sort of like haphazard and random? Like, how do you go about finding the stories that you have a pretty wide uh, range? I, I was really into the gambling thing for a while. Not not so much anymore. Um, I was even thinking about. A long time ago, I'd write a, I'd write some some kind of book about gambling, mm-hmm. but then I saw that there are only three or four gambling books, and they just get written over and over again. There's like I Gambler, the story of my debauchery. There's like the history of gambling, yeah, yeah. like going back to ancient times. 
Um, there's like how to gamble and, and beat the casinos. I remember standing in front of uh, at Powell's in front of like the gambling shelf and just seeing this endless cyclical repetition. I was like, I'll find a different cul-de-sac that I'll contribute yeah, yeah. <laughs> to when it when it uh, comes time to write a book. But you were asking um, like how to how do I find stories? Um, I don't think I do this anymore. But I, there was a time when my method was like I would just be like, who are the weirdest people I can find on the internet? who are actually real and meet in person and 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 they aren't just doing this as a joke who are the like strangest people i can find through some internet sub meme message board and and that would be like the trolls story yeah the even the warren buffett story to some extent was like that now it's more i, I read the front section of the new york times uh-huh. and try to find a little foreign story in the new york times that where i just read the facts of it and they they make no sense and it seems like the government isn't being totally straightforward and it, w- it would benefit from some more scrutiny. But these online-based stories, I oh, mean, yeah. probably the most direct one is the troll story where you actually like, I mean, it's almost like you brought the idea of trolling to a wider audience. Like most people who like lived a lot of their lives online would have known at that point when that story came out, like what trolling was and what 4chan was. But I feel like there's a much, much wider audience who would have no idea. How'd you get those, those guys to, to actually like sit down and talk to you? I think that was what surprised me about that story was that these guys did some pretty nasty things and then they seemed to just be willing to like mm-hmm. meet you right, in person. Right, 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 right. Well, there were two. There was Jason Fortuny mm-hmm. and then there was, uh, who has sort of returned to a more mild-mannered Clark Kent state in his own life. <laughs> oh, since really? Then. Yeah, we're, we're friends on Facebook and he's like a real chill, sweet, normal dude. Um, huh. I think he's retired from trolling and I think the piece was good for him in a way. And then, then there's Weave, who we've heard a lot more from. It does weigh on my conscience just a little bit that I feel as though I may have harmed him by giving him the attention that he craves and that also is, I think, destructive to him as a person. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, Well, describe I, a little bit about what he... He just he loves publicity. Done. It's not hard to get Weave to sit down and, and talk about uh-huh. it, you know, because he just, you know, you put a microphone in front of him and he'll just start spouting off you know, slurs and, and saying awful things, some of which I quoted. So he's he's like journalistic candy. Um and now he's in jail because the stuff he says is 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 too crazy and then he goes and does some of it. Did you have any repercussions from doing that story? I mean a lot of that story is about doxing people and you know No, I mean I, I think they sent some Korans to my mom and maybe some mailing supplies. I think there was a 4chan thread with some anti-Semitic death threats. Uh-huh. But these are all just 14-year-old kids in basements. And if they knew how to do any of it for real, they would make a name for themselves as like Sabu or like, you know, some, you know, they would have like their own brand. So the anonymous ones are the least, are the ones who aren't good enough to distinguish themselves. If you freak out <laughs> and start reacting to their trolling, then they'll like, they'll get into it. But if you just ignore them, they'll just move on to someone who, who's, who, who freaks more easily. That's what I found. But um, the government, you know, the, the, with, with, with cyber terrorism, people like to fluff them up into more of a threat than they are yeah. for various various political reasons. And I'm still waiting to see the first person who's been harmed in, in a physical way by things that people mean, things that people say to them, about them on the Internet. Well, the, the ones in the story seem to be coming in in the aftermath of some tragedy happening and sort of like... I mean, this sort of like horrible, uh, you know, making fun of grieving parents or things like that. But they, at least in that piece, they weren't the people who had, you know, supposedly like driven someone to suicide or something like that. Or, right. 
Right, right. And I, and I, I guess that's been alleged to have happened a couple times. But I, I, I just worry with the whole cyber terrorism thing and like the NSA. I feel like since 9-11, there's been a real lack of actual threats mm-hmm. to the U.S. And so there's sort of a there are a lot of incentives for people within the government to find things that people might find scary and that uh, cyber terrorism and trolls certainly certainly fill the bill. But I'm not, I'm not sure that the, the evidence really substantiates that they, that they pose a serious threat to public health in the way that, you know, say the Soviet Union might have with, <laughs> with you know, hundreds of nuclear weapons right. programmed to incinerate American cities. I know, I, you know, but trolls are actually being used in the same way. They're being talked about in congressional hearings and they're breaking into your bank accounts and they're, they're infiltrating our critical infrastructures and, and they're going to make our like trains crash into each other. And, and I, I, th- I think a lot of it's BS. And do you feel like you're still kind of like you're on that beat or you're looking for another story? Or once you did that big story, you feel like now I want to move on to I don't want to be writing about trolls again. Troll is definitely the latter. Like, don't want to write about again. I don't think there's much, much more there. I mean, there are other people. There are great writers who who made that into a beat. But, um, you know, I was even hanging out with Adrian Chen the other day, who's got who's really knows this stuff well, much yeah. better than I do. And. Uh, I hope I'm not talking out of school when I say that I got the sense from him that he's interested in other stuff too. Trolls, most of them aren't 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 very serious people. There's that hacker on House of Cards. He seems like a serious guy. <laughs> you know, he knows how to do some stuff. He's on the dark web. But maybe yeah. I maybe I just wasn't deep enough into the beat to ever meet that guy. You know, you, you just meet like a lot of jokers. Yeah. And then you give them you take you're the first person to like take them seriously. And I don't know, there was something like superficial a little bit about the whole repertorial interaction and then you're incentivized in a way as a journalist to maybe make them seem a little more threatening than than they are or to capture them at their most threatening moment and so there may not be enough tension there between you and 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 the subject matter yeah or do i think i wanted more more tension than that and so shifting from that to like the like 14 year old kid in his basement to the like uh, seventy something. Uh, is he seventy something? Warren Buffett, the you know sometimes richest man in the world. You did this piece for Harper's about Warren Buffett when you went to the the sort of like annual meeting slash carnival weird atmosphere for Berkshire Hathaway. And I remember when this piece came out, and I read it, and I was emailing with you, and I said like this reminds me some of like Frank Sinatra has a cold and that sort of thing because you you're like reporting around him and don't ever talk to him. And I think you said, if I recall, oh, Harper's didn't want me to talk to him. That wasn't the point. Oh, yeah. I, th- th- that is, I remember, Bill Wasik, great guy. Yeah, um, great, great yeah, yeah. Uh, editor. And really writer. good editor. Um, he, he edited that piece. And he, yeah, he told me that it's not important talking to him. I also wouldn't, it, w- it would have been impossible for me to talk to him. But I think when, when, when Bill said that, when Bill told me that access to Buffett was not important, that really liberated me uh-huh. because when your editor tells you that access is important, um, at least in my experience, maybe I might be a little bit too servile for my own good. But it really gives you tunnel vision yeah. because it's really, you know, you're like, that's all you can think about is like, am I going to get to meet the guy? You know, my boss wants me to. And, and, and when you're told that you don't have to worry about that, that, that really frees you up to think about all of these like lateral ways into, into this person. Mm-hmm. And then Warren Buffett's so easy to write about without meeting because he's so static. He's always in the same place. He's always doing the same thing. 
he's a man of routine. So all you need to do is like find each little piece of his routine in the secondary literature and, you know, synthesize it, which is what I tried to do at the beginning of the piece. And um, people, the people who do get to meet him, he just says the same things over and over again right. <laughs> to them. He's, he's a pretty, pretty reticent guy. So you, you, uh, you, you bought a share of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, I still have, you it. have it. Yeah, it's Is worth it a lot more than it was when I p- bought it. Yeah. Really? It's so split. the story really paid off? Well, I was really scared I wasn't getting it into the meeting. Yeah. Wait, that turned out to be really easy, but I was really, but I, I wanted to sort of do overkill in terms of uh, making sure I got into the meeting after I got on the plane. So I bought the share and then I even transferred it to like a stock holding company so that it, to make sure that I would get the paperwork and stuff. But huh. in fact, it's really easy to go to the meeting. You can like buy buy a ticket from another shareholder on eBay, but I just want to make sure all the all the P's and Q's are in a row. Yeah. <laughs> and did you, there's a lot in this, and this was true in that um, that craps dice piece that you did for Harper's 2. You know, there's a, there's a sort of larger uh, theme that comes out that in the Buffett case, like it's about capitalism. It's about where we are right now. It was after the 2008 crash and sort of what what all of this means. And do you, did you go into the story with those ideas? These are the themes I want to explore. Or do those come out in the writing when you actually sit down to write it? I think both. I think some of them come from the publication. Uh, I think Harper's occupies a very important place on the political spectrum, uh, in terms of, especially in terms of economic discourse. The thing that you know, came out in Harper's again and again during that time is the extent to which ordinary Americans are being taken advantage of economically by people in power. And this is, you know, one of Tom Frank's big themes. Mm -hmm. And I think this really ran through the magazine during that time and to some extent now. And then there's a temptation to just present them as suckers, particularly in the Midwest, going back to the the big con, which is a a masterwork of of anthropology by Moorer. You know, the sucker is this great American trope. But I think there's also a danger there um, there's a wonderful uh, and extremely critical piece about the nonfiction of Wells Tower by a guy I know a little bit named Paul Malazuski, who used to write for The Baffler, and he also writes fiction. But it's Paul Malazuski really taking Wells Tower to task for his Harper's stuff and saying that he doesn't, that he's too condescending to these ordinary people that he meets. He's just out there kind of looking for for quote-unquote people who will fill this sucker bill. I mean, I'm really compressing. I mean, Paul says a lot more. But I was actually, I read this piece, (laughs) I read Paul Malzewski's piece on on Wells Tower in a motel room in Morgan City, Louisiana, while trying to write something about the Deepwater Horizon spill Uh and petroleum in America for Harper's. And it really really shook me up because I felt like a lot, uh, you know, a lot of what, Paul was criticizing Wells for, I was guilty of in both of these Harper's pieces. I mean, there's moments where I, I, I think I don't fall prey to what Paul wrote. And, and a lot of what Paul wrote is it's criticism. It's a polemic and he has to overstate his case in order to have it hit home. But you felt like you might also have been looking for suckers and portraying people as suckers in those stories? At times. It's always dangerous when you're looking for, when you walk into a situation with a, 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 a political narrative already in mind, and you're just casting people to fill that narrative, to whatever extent that's happening, there's something that's, that's less than honest about that, and the people you write about will, will come across as, as less than human because of it. If I were on trial and wanted to exonerate myself, I would point people to the Shai Dardashti section 
of the Buffett piece who, you know, he was this young guy. I think he was maybe just out of school who started his own Buffett style fund. Yeah. In New New York. York, It was doing really well. And it was just a super, uh, very competent, apparently virtuous, straightforward person who had really absorbed this teaching and gospel from Buffett and for whom it had been a net positive for him and, and probably for the people around him. And, 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 and who was also very, 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 very smart and filled with energy. And I, and I tried to put that across that I was really blown away by this person and that, and that the Buffett gospel, you know, it, it does work for some people. Did you get a reaction from the people that you portrayed ever feeling like they had been cast in this, in this role? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I, I've kept up with Sherry Gregory, who's in that piece. I mean, I tried to show when I wrote a couple things about her life and background that she was a strong person and also a a shrewd person, um, both for her Buffett investments and her other financial activities. But I I, I do feel like there was a gap between who Sherry Gregory is in person and and who she was in this Harper's piece as part of the Warren Buffett Buffett fandom. You know, we still email now about other stuff from time to time, but... uh, I, I, I think we did talk about that a little bit. The other thing I wanted to just ask quickly about in that Buffett story is there's this crazy section at the end where like everyone clears out of this bar and then there's like one of the heirs right to the to the Berkshire Hathaway fortune and some or the daughter of an the, early the, Berkshire Hathaway investor. I may be reading between the lines here. You are driving with her in a car in which she appears to be drunk driving. Is that was that the case? That that was the impression at the at the time. I mean, I didn't have a breath test or anything on me. I disagree with uh, the whole journalist and the murderer thesis, the Janet Malcolm thesis, which maybe, I don't know if you ever talked about with other other folks it's about that It's come up, yeah, it, uh, you know, the famous line comes up uh, I, I, periodically. I disagree with it, but that would be the, the of all of the reporting I'm engaged in, it would be that encounter where I, it would be the easiest to to convict me of, of uh, well, holding someone out for like, for ridicule. If you go back and read the piece, she was kind of in this bar with her friend and they were making a scene yeah and they really were making a scene i mean <laughs> they really did get 86 from this bar and they really did reach into her she did reach into her purse and pull out this whole group of tickets and say look you know i i own enough shares to buy this whole place you're all the little peon you know i don't remember her words exactly they're in they're in, they're in the piece but the whole thing really did happen that way and then I was like, well, man, I, you know, <laughs> I really, <laughs> I really got to use this. <laughs> she really wasn't happy about it afterwards, though. And it, you know, um, But I wondered if there was a moment of like, like if you left a bar with someone who just got thrown out of the bar for like maybe being drunk and making a scene, you'd be like, I'm not going to get in the car with you actually while you're driving. But if you had a moment of like anything for the story, like I'm going to get in the backseat with this person who's like maybe intoxicated driving this car. Oh, I was at that point, I was just like. This is great. I want as much as I can. I wasn't. The risk blinders were were were, were totally off. Huh. I don't think that would ever happen now, especially in like Libya or Jamaica. But on that night in Omaha, I was like, "This is great. I'm really interested in it. Things are happening." And then also the other nice thing about that, and one thing I really liked about it is that, I for me, I'm always going trying to find those moments where something's occurring that would probably or conceivably be occurring if I weren't there, and trying to observe that. Yeah. And, and, and when you're actually there, when someone is creating a minor public disturbance that you did not instigate, you're just serendipitously present while it's happening, and you're able to actually narrate it in every little bit of its you know detail. 
that you know that's nice yeah um and the the barbershop scene in the beginning that one's a little bit that was rj being rj this yeah. this is when the guy went in and, and sort of tried to take over the the barbershop that's in warren buffett's basement and rolled in with his whole crew and kind of like you know try to push the barber around a little bit and you see the barber right. pushing back on yeah. him and there's there's a sort of sparring thing that's going on between the the, the new york out of towners who are who are big shots and this is their big weekend and, and then the lowly but not so lowly barber who's trying trying to manage this yeah there's a great like tiny moment in there where the, somebody pulls out like a bunch of bottles of wine and then they say can anyone open these and you say i can and then there's like a line where it says i struggled with the bottle or something and then the guy says i thought you were a bartender yeah and that was sort of i sort of wanted to clue the reader in a little bit that rj was probably not aware at that point that I was doing a story for for Harper's and uh-huh. that this was going to be published in a magazine. Though he did hear about all of it before publication. Yeah. And I guess if I'd been doing this for the New York Times, that would not have been kosher. But because these bars and barbershops are in fact public places and because I'm witnessing things that any individual who happened into those places you know, would have witnessed, I'm not provoking them and nor am I intruding into anyone else's private space. I feel like they're fair game. With the with the bar one, it's more like prosecutorial discretion, and you know, if, right. you, if you Google this young lady's name now, this 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 incident, which is probably not the best facet of her character, pops up, and that has consequences for her. And I, you know, and I feel for her on that. And she's not Hillary Clinton, and you can make a good argument that that as a moral thing, she may not deserve that kind of intense scrutiny on this one night where she behaved far more rudely than I have in my entire life. Yeah, but it, but it was a, but you exposed it to a much wider audience. Yeah, than than, so than, than she ever could have an, than she ever could have anticipated. That's right. You seem very ve- you know vehement in in disagreeing with with a sort of journalist and murderer. Uh, what what is the exact quote? We should start with. We, it, should, we should both know it by was, heart. Yeah, it's like yeah. uh, any, any journalist, journalist who's who's not too full of themselves too, um, or too stupid to know otherwise knows that what they're doing is morally indefensible. Yeah, and I take her thesis. Maybe I'm misinterpreting it as being that. She thinks journalists are just these clever con artists who go around and, and get over on people by getting them to say things they su- shouldn't say and share things that they shouldn't share. Um, and I feel like if you walk into journalism with that idea that you're, that you're the smart one <laughs> and that you're just going gonna to trick the people you meet, then you're condemning yourself. You're only going to have a sustained interaction with um, people who are indeed less intelligent than you are. Uh-huh. And, you, and you'll learn nothing or, 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 or next to nothing because my sort of go into it with the opposite idea that people are basically smart. And if, you, if you're trying to fool them, they'll smell that and they'll, they'll pull away from you and they won't tell you anything because cause people don't like to be deceived and they usually have a good sense of, of the intentions of the people who they're meeting with and, 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 and talking to. But there's, I, I feel like there is a more, I mean, that's true. The journalism murder line is pretty, you know, that's always like taught in journalism schools. But I feel like it does get more subtle either in that book or like in the uh, the Crimes of Sheila McGowan. I don't know if you ever read that. But no, no, it, is, it yeah. explores like similar issues as all her work explores similar issues. But I think another part of it is just like there's a there's a mystery in sort of like why someone's telling you something, like why they talk to a reporter, the impulse that they have to talk to a reporter. And you get into these moments where, someone is telling you something that you know is not in their interest. It's not in their interest to be telling you that. And the question is like, should you let them continue doing that? 
I, w- I certainly wouldn't say no. Like we wouldn't have jobs in this particular profession if if not. But it is it. I feel like I I have experienced that where I think like this is great stuff. This person, if they took like five seconds and thought about this, right, they would stop right. talking right now. The one thing I do is I sort of I do put people in two boxes: people who can look out for themselves and and should know better, and then people who it's it's on me to look out for them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do that at all? Or is yeah, it ever, I would say you know? there there are people who you know, you know. Of course, there's a category of people who are politicians or you know if I've done stories about the FBI or something like people who are very savvy and you know, they're trying to sort of like get one over on you. And then there are people who've never dealt with reporters who show up at their door. You're just a friendly face and no one's ever asked them their story before. And that's a different type of interaction. So yeah, I guess I was, I would put that, put those people in different categories. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the distinction that's lost in the sort of endless repetition of that one Jen and Malcolm line is the, whether you're reporting on powerful people or powerless people. So you treat powerless people like you you've been reporting on migrants or you're reporting on people who were the subject of a government massacre in Jamaica that those people you have a different approach to them than you do institutions that are powerful like that's not the same even if you had the same friend relationship with someone at the state department it's not yeah. the same and i i just hate the cynicism that that like you're either Janet Malcolm showing everyone in their in their real light which is also their worst possible light or you're Bob Woodward you know, as Joan Didion called him, like a, a stenographer of power, creating creating political pornography. I mean, I think those are two ends, two ends of the spectrum. And there's a way, a middle ground there where you can meet with people and, and, and be open handed and, and be decent and have a relationship with them and also call them to account and ask them questions that they, that they don't want to be asked. If a reporter does go into a situation with the Janet Malcolm mindset, and I wonder if she even really thinks that herself. I mean, it's so obviously an inflammatory provocation where she is condemning her own professional career and that of all of her friends and colleagues. It's hard for me to believe that that, that uh, is totally in earnest. But if you did go into an interaction with that mindset, you, you're never actually going to be able to speak to anyone in power, ask them any questions at all, because they know that like what you're in it for is just to make fun of the knickknacks on their, on their wall <laughs> and, 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 and infer uh, nefarious... Uh, readings into to their every pause, gesture, and, and 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 slip of the tongue, and and and, and that you're you're you you know. So if 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 your mentality is unfair, why would they even like let you into the the drawing room in the first place? So so I th- there has to be like a a balance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now you look for more international stories. You did a thing about KSM, Khalid Mohammed, uh, and the trial and everything associated with him, which ended up being for Kindle singles. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, no one wants no one wants Guantanamo stories. Although I know that there are some underway now, but for the most part I think the American public's just kind of tired of hearing about it and it's been so static for so long and it's on everyone's conscience, I think. From an editorial perspective, you're just kind of beating people up if you're like rubbing more Guantanamo in their face. Right, it's in still like there. Year 10 or 12 or like yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought I was thinking of it this week just because like all of that KSM stuff was uh, you know, we can't try them in New York because uh, it'll be a platform to talk about it. And then they just tried, you know, Osama bin Laden's son-in-law in New York. And it was like, no. Did anyone talk about that? I don't know. Someone should write that that op-ed for the Times because it totally, that's infuriating. I mean, international stories are harder to get to some extent. So from just like from a logistical financial perspective for you, are you, do you find that you're trying to do just like a smaller number of big stories every year? Or are you are you weaving together... 
smaller and bigger stuff. I think I've written a really low number of stories <laughs> total. Um, I think it's easier. It's gotten a little bit easier for um, for me to uh, talk people into buying the first plane ticket. And I do have another international piece that should be out in the next, you know, four to six weeks, I think, um, about migration, Mediterranean, across the Mediterranean. So I was able uh-huh. to go to uh, Italy and and then Libya for a little while uh-huh. for for that piece. Who's that for? Um, for the for the New Yorker. So yeah, no, I want to do more more international stuff. And it's getting like I said, it's getting easier to get folks to buy that first ticket. And the Pulitzer Crisis Center, yep. they um they funded my first trip for the Honduras piece. But the downside is that you don't get to spend the same amount of obsessive time, or you don't get to you know if it's not your own money, you don't get to waste as much time and the time's never completely wasted the jamaica story especially was 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 somewhere on the line between journalism and and anthropology been especially flattered by the number of academics who are interested in tivoli gardens who've like reached out to me since then for like help and advice or feedback or to talk about it and i want to do more stuff like that but it's but it's hard that it's it's a little bit longer and more intensive than what you know, international magazine journalism usually is. Yeah, but it gets it gets easier in the sense that once you've done the Jamaica piece, it's easier to say I can drop into Honduras and say you know I can find the story, I can turn this into a. One thing that starts to come up is there's the big quote unquote important countries that are on John Kerry's mind, let's say, like and most of them are not in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, and then there's countries like. Jamaica and Honduras that are very important to the people who live there and have been important actually at, at other times, but are not a major part of the Washington discourse right now. And it's harder to write about those places, but there's also many overlooked stories there mm-hmm. because the lack of interest translates to fewer journalists on the ground. You know, that's also where, where terrible things happen and no one's aware of it because because no one's watching. And you mentioned your fiance, not to get too personal, but do you feel like it's going to get harder in your life to like pack a bag and and go on a moment's notice? Or is that do you feel like that's always gonna be part of your sort of professional world? Is oh, it definitely no, it certainly it certainly gets harder. I mean, I mean <laughs> you know, I could there've never been sunnier times for print journalism and as a man gets older and has children, it only gets easier to pack a bag <laughs> and go to ever more dangerous places for ever longer periods of time. Great. You know? Let's, and, and thanks whatever, for coming on. Whatever physical uh, physical or, or, or handicaps may arise or worries, they're overcome by the ever-growing profit of experience. But, <laughs> but um, I think I did, you know, when I was in Jamaica, I called Mark Danner and asked him for advice because your colleague Nicholas Thompson pointed me to Mark Danner's amazing El Salvador mm-hmm. massacre story mm-hmm. about El Mozote, which he turned into a book and which I think ran in an entire issue of The New Yorker was devoted to this investigation of the, the El Mozote massacre. I think I knew this from Danner's book before I talked to him, even though he was really, his advice was super helpful. But he did that and like, I don't know, he was only there for like eight or nine days. I mean, he was, he was fluent in Spanish and he rented a truck and he just drove up into the mountains where all these things had happened and, and, and talk to people. And the book is, you know, it's got to be 60, 80,000 words long. He knew the country well to begin with. He spoke the language. There was a fair amount of secondary reporting on it. And he also interviewed a lot of the officials and was able to get a lot of the, the officials at the time 
uh, to, to, to talk about it. So it is, so it is possible to do stuff like this very well and very quickly. All right, Matt. Thanks for coming oh, on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really thanks. appreciate it. Sure. We'll yeah. talk to you again after your next <laughs> set of pieces come out. Cool. Yeah. No, thank you, Evan. It's been a pleasure. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to my guest, Mattatias Schwartz, for joining me and our sponsors, Tiny Letter and Audible.com. And, uh, of course, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and our intern, Sarah Button. Both of them working very hard on this show. And we will see you here next week with a new guest. Thanks. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.